You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. On this special long weekend edition of the show, we have details about a year-long road safety campaign to encourage drivers to slow down and change their behaviors. Also ahead, advice for your student on how to land that summer job. But we begin with Andre Clafton from Vaughn Fire Services and how to keep your Victoria Day fireworks fun for all. Andre, thank you for joining us on the feed. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So here we are. We're in the middle of the long weekend. And this is the weekend where the fireworks come out. And we all think that we can handle the backyard fireworks. Sometimes things don't go as they should. So what do we need to remember when we're buying that big box of fireworks? How do we make sure that everyone in our neighborhood, the spectators, uh, people around us are all safe? Well, first of all, um, it's not just the backyard. It's actually families uh, getting together, throwing the money on the street. Everybody is uh, putting money in, and then they want to light off the fireworks. But guess what the bad part is? The sad part and the bad part about this is that you can't fire, in the city of Vaughan, you can't fire fireworks off a street, park, or laneways. So that's number one. Number two is when you go to Canada's Wonderland and you see fireworks, you're at a safe distance. Well, these people on the street are putting the fireworks right on the street, and the distance is not 30 meters. It's less than that. Unfortunately, a couple years ago, we had uh, a family doing fireworks, and unfortunately, the firework wasn't put in properly. It bent, and it flew out, burning the uh, child's leg. Um, so, yes, so we, we advise, if you are going to do fireworks, go to, a, go to a place and watch them, or if you are going to do them, please uh, follow the rules, and they're very simple. Make sure you have a lot of distance. Uh, make sure you check the wind, and you want to read the instructions. You want to make sure that when you put the fireworks, you put it into a, uh, a bucket with uh, sand, and you fill the fireworks half full of sand, and then light it from a distance. It's good to wear gloves. It's also important to have a fire extinguisher or a hose uh, line ready to go. If the fireworks doesn't go off, don't go up and rush up to it and get it because it may go off. Wait half an hour, then s- gently pick it up carefully and dump it into a bucket of water right away. So that will stop anything from exploding on you right away. And I guess many of us think that it's not going to happen to me, right? That we don't take those precautions where we put the sand in the pail and we have that fire extinguisher ha- handy. What do you say to those people that think, yeah, yeah, you're going to be fine. I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. It'll be good. Well, how about I tell you this? It's homeowner's responsibility that if anything goes wrong, they're, re- they're liable. So technically, the fire department could charge them. Their insurance company is going to be involved. And one thing to remember, when you're letting off the fireworks, you want to check the wind direction because you know, there's going to be fallout and it's going to land on your neighbor's roof. So do you want to catch your neighbor's house on fire? And then you've got to remember, look at the city of Vaughan. How close is your house to your neighbor? Very close. And that's what we're talking about. So what about taking these fireworks and, you know, those boxes that we often get and taking them to our local park? Can we do that? No. So in the city of Vaughan, the bylaws, like I said earlier, uh, you can't do it in any parks, laneway, roadways, 
or, or places like that. Now, some people, what they do is because the backyard is tight, uh, we have seen them at their risk uh, do it on their front yard. Um, once again, you want to make sure that you know the wind direction. You want to make sure you follow the proper rules. You want to make sure you have the proper protection. And you want to make sure your uh, spectators are at least a 30 meters or further away. So if anything goes wrong, it doesn't fly back on your spectators causing uh, danger to them. Now, what about when those sparks land on your neighbor's roof or your roof? Is that a danger? Could that actually start a fire? It, it could, and it all depends on the weather, right? It, like the, like uh, some uh, Victoria days, we've had some really, really hot days. So you've got to be very careful, and you've also got to listen to the radio, TV, because there may be a dry spell, and they'll say no, uh, no fireworks, no open flames, uh, or barbecues like that. So you want to listen to uh, the media to see what, what the weather's like. Okay, so just as we wrap this up, one final message or reminder to our residents and our listeners who are thinking about hosting their own backyard fireworks. What should they keep in mind? Well, you want to make sure you get uh, your fireworks from a replica dealer, number one. Uh, if they say, oh, this is good and, and it doesn't look right and your gut say no, don't buy it. There is a, um, a firework to be careful. It's called a Sprite Bomb. Um, they, it looks like it's, uh, it's in a package, almost looks like a pack of gum, but it isn't. Uh, I took some out of a, a store and I just held one in my hand just for a second. And because of my sweat, it went off my hand. Uh, it caused a little burn to my, ha- my fingers, but uh, it did go off. And the worst part was, like I said, they were selling it beside a gum. So if I bought it, I would have thought originally it was a pack of gum. And it's called a Sprite Bomb, so be aware of them. So you want to make sure you get a proper uh, fireworks. You want to make sure you've got uh, proper protection for yourself, goggles, ears, uh, gloves, a hose, a fire extinguisher. And you want to make sure the biggest thing is make sure you got distance. Terrific. Thanks for joining us, Andre. If our listeners want more information, is there a website they can go to? Yeah, uh, they go to Vaughn Fire and Rescue website or the City of Vaughn website, and we'll be right on there. Joining us next on the feed is Nelson Costa. He's the Manager, Corridor Control, Safety, Roads, and Traffic Operations. Nelson, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Yes, I'm responsible for traffic safety, which includes reviewing regional roads for opportunities to improve traffic operations, identifying the need for traffic signals, roundabouts, stop signs, and regulatory requirements like speed limits, no passing zones, and turn restrictions to support safe travel. Our traffic safety team works very closely with signal operations, road maintenance, and construction groups to implement measures that improve safety and enhance traveler experience. I'm also responsible for a number of safety programs, which include the Red Light Camera Program. This has been very successful in reducing T-bone collisions by more than 70% at camera locations. We have a Speed Watch Program where we deploy radar feedback boards to encourage motorists to slow down. And we run various safety campaigns throughout the year targeting pedestrians and cyclists. Now, Nelson, you mentioned that the Red Light Camera has been very successful. Why is that? Well, the uh, camera has been the camera program has been very successful in the fact that we have 40 sites um, deployed across the regional road network, and um, so through communication and education and awareness, we've been um, advising our 
citizens about um, our focus in trying to reduce T-bone collisions. Uh, these are the most severe type of collisions. And uh, so through the education and also the fact that when motorists do um, receive a, a, a fine through uh, running a red light, um, that communication in itself gets spread and there's a halo effect and just a, a knowledge amongst the community um, to change their driver behavior. Now, recently you launched the year-long road safety campaign. Why is it necessary and what's involved in this campaign? Yeah, so York Region continues to grow and we have a number of travelers in, uh, using our road network. Our goal is to assist in the safe and efficient movement of people and goods. At different times of the year, we try to address the trends we see in travelers. So, for example, in warmer months, we see an increase in speeding and aggressive driving, while in the fall, we see shorter daylight hours when motorists, pedestrians, and cyclists need to be more cautious and alert. So this week, during National Road Safety Week, York Region's Transportation Department has partnered with York Regional Police to launch a slow-down campaign to remind motorists about the dangers of speeding. Now, here we are, you know, the unofficial uh, long weekend of summer, the first one. What message do you have for drivers then as they head out on the roads this weekend? Well, as people get ready to begin their travel this Victoria Day long weekend, we're asking motorists to slow down and drive safe. Uh, motorists tend to drive faster and aggressive during summer months, uh, resulting in higher percentage of injury collisions compared to other months of the year. During the summer months, we also see more pedestrians and cyclists, and it's important that we slow down and give these vulnerable road users space. Can you tell me then how the Roads and Traffic Department works with York Regional Police on road safety campaigns like this one? Yeah, York Region's Transportation Department partners with York Regional Police on several road safety campaigns throughout the year, including Pledge to Ignore, which is a, a campaign that focuses on warning drivers the dangers of distracted driving, we also partner on several pedestrian and cycling safety campaigns that include CrossSmart, which is educating school children how to use pedestrian signals. We have a pedestrian safety guide for seniors, uh, a cycle smart program, which includes cycling maps and handbooks. And we also have a Be Visible, Be Seen campaign, which launches in the fall when we begin to experience shorter daylight hours. Nelson, if our listeners want more information about those campaigns or anything else, where can they go to connect? Yeah, listeners can visit york.ca forward slash traffic safety for more information on York Region's traffic safety programs. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Around this time of year, students across York Region are applying for that perfect summer job. Afwa Ba is next with How to Make It Happen. Well, this is the time of the year when university and high school students are on the summer job hunt. And just to make sure that everyone has enough tips to make sure that they land that perfect job that they need for the next few months. Uh, joining me to chat today is Steve Mahoney, who is the marketing director with Monster.ca. Steve, thanks so much for joining me today. Glad to be here. My pleasure. Perfect. OK, so uh, let's start off with high school students. They won't be spending their mom's and their their parents' money forever, and they're going to have to eventually get a job of their own. Uh, let's help them out first. Them with high school students looking for their first summer job. What do they need to know, and basically, where do they start? That's a great question. So, starting off, uh, if you're in high school and you're looking for a summer job, it makes the most sense to try to narrow down and focus on uh, a certain number of companies or maybe industries that uh, they'd like to work in so they can narrow their search and focus their search 
and then reach out to those those organizations uh, directly. So maybe pick three to five and then focus on those and be very sort of very clear on the type of position they're looking for and what they have to offer. If they have any experience, perhaps um, doing any previous volunteer work, uh, they should include that in their resume and in their application and put forth those those skills and uh, present them present those skills as they in their search. Um, to start, they should they can certainly start online, going to Google, going to uh, some of the career websites such as Monster, of course, and search. You can search for um, high school summer job, uh, part time. Uh, you can define your search that way and to narrow it down and try to surface those types of jobs that are suitable for a for a high school student with limited experience, uh, but trying to find something uh, just temporarily for the summer. Okay, and so uh, great tips even just to start off, just uh, figure out the three to five things and narrowing it down. Um, what about those um, the situations where there are the national hiring days from those major um, corporations that are looking for students? They're actually <laughs> calling out to students saying, "Hey, come here." I've I've heard though sometimes with students um, they they come off with a little bit of a, I don't, I don't want to work there. And I'm like, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> you don't even have a job to begin with. Um, can that work for them? And if, I mean, can they be picky at that stage? Well, my, my recommendation would be to try not to be too picky. Um, the important thing is to get some type of experience and, you know, something to, something to start building out that resume. Um, you know, it may not be the most appealing company or the most appealing job. It might be a lot of very basic tasks that you would have to do, but it shows, you know, it shows character and it shows perseverance and you can start getting some skills uh, that you can list on your resume and you never know what can lead to. You can be, you know, partway through a job that maybe isn't that exciting and it's not your dream summer job, but you can be assigned, a, you know, pick up to take on more responsibility and you can start building out from there and take on, you know, some new tasks and leadership tasks um, and just start to broaden that experience. I think mean, that is the key um, to, to, to focus on and, and not try not to be too picky and, and too particular because the important thing is to start getting that experience. Right on. Okay, so uh, let's then maybe look at their, their resume. I know you touched on that a little bit earlier in terms of uh, what they can actually put on there. Um, since they don't have a lot of work experience, um, do they focus on maybe sort of highlighting their soft skills that they have, soft skills versus hard skills? What would they sort of do in terms of um, putting together the resume to put out there? Yes, they can certainly uh, highlight some of their soft skills, like if they've had any leadership experience. Maybe they worked for a, at a summer camp or they did some volunteer work where they were tasked to uh, organize uh, an event or plan out an event and then they thought through from beginning to completion, um, as well as any kind of program management or project management they may have done, regardless of how, how, how small or how big. Um, communication skills are very important. Um, maybe they've got, some, they've got um, a web page or uh, some, some examples of their creativity. Um, they can they can tr may focus uh, present that and, and have links to uh, to a portfolio or, or links to their social media um, uh, pages. Um, 
highlighting, you know, be honest with, you know, you're in high school and if they're a good student, if they're an honor student, then certainly include that information. That would, that would certainly help and would sort of give a better picture of, of the well-rounded uh, individual. All right. Okay. And so then before we transition then into post-secondary students, I wanted to touch up on something that you, you just mentioned social media. And of course, both sides, whether you're in high school or in post-secondary, uh, quite social media savvy. Um, can you talk about just a little bit, um, maybe the, the skills that they can put on relating to their social media use? Because it, it is a lot of things that corporations are now looking towards. And also maybe cleaning up their social media and that it could actually be a hindrance to them getting a job. That's a great point. Um, you know, most people, uh, especially the younger generations, are uh, have a, a social media presence and are active. Um, employers, hiring hiring managers and recruiters will definitely look at an individual's uh, social profiles to get an idea of what they're all about. So it's important to to make sure that they can clean up their their descriptions or their their profile. Um, uh, the short description that goes along with a Twitter account or, or Snapchat and make sure that they clean up the photos. They don't have photos of them partying or, or doing anything inappropriate. So make sure that it's tasteful imagery and, and the profiles are tasteful and their email address as a, as a professional, um, uh, 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 a professional name and not something, um, that's, that may be, um, the wrong give the give the recruiter the hiring manager the wrong idea so it would be an important step would be for the individual to do an audit of their own social profiles and make sure that uh, there's nothing inappropriate all right i I really hope everyone sort of picks up on that one especially because um i think sometimes they they take it a little bit too too much for granted that they think their twitter handle is fine and it's like no you can't flip the bird to the corporation but um, I'm just hoping that they sort of really touch up on that point, but it's a really great point that, uh, anyone, not even just students, but anyone who is, has a social media presence should probably be more cognizant of. So that is a great point there. Let's switch over now to post-secondary students. Uh, for those students who have now finished up, they are now at the end of their, uh, school year and they're now looking for a job. Since they likely have a bit more work experience, but now they want to find a job that is within their field. How do they go about that in order to land their job? Again, uh, my recommendation would be to do lots of research and try to narrow down their focus. If they have, um, you know, for example, a certain skill set in information technology, um, then and, and they have a, a decent idea of, of the type of organization they'd like to work for and the type of work they'd like to do with the type of projects, then they should focus on um, uh, pursuing and learning about certain types, certain companies, and 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 focus their search on a handful of, of different of of um, specific uh, positions, just to keep the search narrow and more focused, and then do as much research as possible. And then when they craft their their cover letter and their resume, to pull keywords and and um, key skills that are listed in the job descriptions. Work those into the into the cover letter. Work those into the to the resume, and then when they do get to the point of of having an interview or like phone screening or maybe an in person interview, they should make sure they do lots of research uh, about the organization so they get a sense of the culture and key information about the organization so that they can speak to that uh, during that uh, that interview process. 
as well. They should have a very a focused, um, very focused sense of, of, of the elevator pitch of what their their best skills are and, and how they present themselves. Um, they may be, for instance, uh, they have a specific uh, information technology programming skills. They should they should mention that as well as strong writing and communication skills and experience uh, project in project management, for example. Uh, so those are some key skills that perhaps are, are, are noted in the job description that they're, they're applying for. So they should include that in their elevator pitch so they can speak to that and, and sell themselves in a concise and, and uh, um, well-defined way. Okay, and so I, I can see now that you're um, touching up on the interview side of it, which is great. It was the next point that I wanted to bring up because most people really focus on their inter- their resume, rather, and then, for lack of a better word, kind of bomb the interview part. They don't really um, take a lot of time to study themselves and to see how they can communicate themselves out to those who um, might be hiring. Do you have any tips for them in terms of how to keep it simple in an interview while also trying to portray your best self? Certainly, um, you know, doing doing interviews, especially if uh, you're not, you don't have a lot of experience doing them, they can be very, uh, can very stre- be very stressful and and um, hard to be yourself and be natural. Um, I think prior to the interview, make sure that the the individual does uh, does their homework and does some research so that they know who they're going to be with, interviewing with, uh, what level that person is at in the organization, where they fit into the organization. Uh, and then based on that, they can also jot down some questions they, they can ask around, uh, around to that individual. They should make sure they do some research about the company. And as I mentioned before as well, make sure they've got that elevator pitch refined and they can succinctly communicate um, what matters to the most about the company and the position, why they want it, and how they can help, uh, help, help be successful in the position. And then rehearse it ahead of time. Practice with a with a friend or, or a colleague um, in uh, in a Q and A format, and and make sure they're speaking concisely and, and clearly. And then the day you know the day of the interview, leading up to the to the actual uh, meeting, make sure they they're prepared and, and know where they're going, and and give themselves lots of time to get there, so they're not putting extra pressure or trying to find a location or find the, the right office in in a building. Uh, for instance, or or getting stressed out or putting more pressure on the situation by uh, by rushing, um, it's important to be calm and as possible and and uh, just ready to to talk and, and communicate and and uh, be as relaxed as possible, um, so that they can put their best foot forward and and speak about and uh, actually communicate uh, their their best qualities. Great points there. Okay, so now let's uh, move forward then. They've they've uh, gone through the interview process. Their resume was perfect. They get the job. Now, how does one maintain that job? How do they keep that good impression um, with the employers? Well, if they get to the point where they've, they've, they've landed the job and they're starting in those, those, those early days, weeks, uh, those are crucial to make a, to make a great impression. Um, one piece of advice would be to um, maybe it's the first day or the first week um, speak to your manager and ask them, you know, what what does someone need to be successful in the first week, the first month, the first three months? Um, 
help them understand what they should focus on. It can be overwhelming. You start a new a new job. There's so much going on. There's so much to learn and new people and new processes. Um, getting some direction and asking for some direction, uh, showing that they have, they're taking initiative and they want to be successful, so they're asking for some some direction and clarification on what they should focus on in those first those crucial first weeks months. Um, as well, along along with that, they should um, if they're not given the direction, then they should ask to you know who should they be speaking to or setting up one to one meetings with to meet and learn about. Uh, to help them understand uh, the organization and how it works and some of the key people to be working with. So it's important to start making those contacts early on um, and then, you know, to, to start establishing relationships and um, to to get off to a good start and learn as much as they can uh, in those first weeks and months. That's great advice. I I didn't even have that when I was the when I first had the job. I just thought, okay, I have to do everything that they say, and then you almost turn into a robot a little bit. But this is more practical. So thank you very much, Steve. Um, uh, just once again, your final piece of advice then for students, and of course, where can uh, listeners go for more info if they uh, maybe need a little bit more help and more tips? Last piece of info. I mean, the, the there's so many online resources, and you can find out about. Um, you know, you can research individual companies and you can find information about specific position and career path. There's a, a wealth of resources online. Um, uh, I'll plug Monster, of course. Um, we've got tons of content um, on our website, monster.ca, that speaks to interviewing and how to set up a, a resume uh, properly, uh, how, to, how to craft a good cover letter, and then tons of content around... Uh, career development and how to handle certain situations in the workplace, uh, sensitive situations, um, asking for a raise or asking for a promotion, um, just a ton of ton of great content. So, uh, And then other organizations uh, also have uh, similar, similar types of content. And you can get this content by you know, going to Google or, or following um, uh, other job, you know, job boards, other uh, social, um, social media pages to get uh, information and you can go to individual companies and um, to learn more of course about their uh, their culture and, and what they're all about. Perfect. Steve Mahoney, Marketing Director from Monster.ca. Thank you so much for joining me today and giving us some, some tip-top information to make sure we get that job. The headline in this story is that not only do women continue to earn less than men in Canada and around the world, but according to a new poll from Ipsos for Girl Guides of Canada, girls are also earning less than boys. To break down the story and the numbers, we're joined by Rachel Weiss from Ipsos Public Affairs Canada. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, this isn't good news. Why is there a gap between boys and girls? Um, well, it's really challenging to pinpoint the exact reasons uh, why there is a gap. Um, so despite the fact that boys and girls were equally as likely to work in the summer of 2018, uh, boys on average made about $3 more per hour. Um, and that's when looking at full-time summer work. So one of the things that we did notice um, when conducting the poll is that there were a difference in the sectors that boys and girls were working in. Um, so we did see some similarities in terms of the sectors. So we saw that equal proportions were working in sectors like food and beverage, uh, retail or entertainment and leisure. 
Um, but some sectors were disproportionately represented by one gender or another. So this included girls being significantly more likely to report that they cared for others, uh, while boys were significantly more likely to report that they worked in maintenance, guarding or groundskeeping, um, as well as things like manufacturing or construction. So if their summer job was, as you said, in food or beverage or in retail, then likely the wage would be about the same, right? Um, so, yeah, so when the job was comparable in terms of sector, uh, that means that the wage also was similar. Um, where we did start to notice differences was in terms of informal work. So when we were asking uh, youth about their summer experiences and their work experiences in particular, we tried to be really cognizant about how we defined work. Um, so we considered work to be a traditional job where you would, you know, provide your SIN number to the employer and taxes were deducted from your check. But we also wanted to understand the experiences of youth who were working in less formal settings, um, including those who were regularly helping family, friends, or neighbors um, with doing tasks like cleaning or yard work. So that's where we started to notice a lot of the differences as well. Um, we found that girls were significantly more likely to say that they helped out their family, friends, or neighbors, uh, being those informal settings. Um, and girls were also significantly less likely to be paid for the full number of hours they worked when they were doing these informal tasks. So this is um, a really big finding that we also noticed is that um, in terms of informal work, uh, the, the wage gap really rose there. So we found that boys on average were earning about um, $6 more per hour than girls in those informal settings. Now, so what was the hourly wage then for boys and girls? And you conducted this poll last summer, right? Yes, this was conducted in the summer of 2018. And what was the hourly uh, wage then for boys and girls? And what's the age group that we're talking about here? So the poll um, was conducted among Canadian youth between the ages of 12 and 18, and we conducted about 1,200 interviews. Um, so the difference in hourly uh, wage really varied depending on the type of work. So we had some youth that were working in full-time internships, um, and among girls, the hourly wage there was about $17 an hour. Um, but we really saw a drop or a variation um, when it came to less formal work. So those who are helping out family and friends um, earned about $8 an hour. So it, it really did range depending on the type of work that was being conducted. Now, despite the differences in pay, did the girls like what they were doing? Yeah, so we definitely um, we saw a lot of satisfaction in terms of overall pay. Um, so when we asked boys and girls about their satisfaction with pay, we saw that both boys and girls uh, were satisfied um, at about 90%. Um, something that's really interesting, actually, that came out of this question as well is that we found that there was definite variation in satisfaction um, among girls. So we saw that, for example, girls who came from families with lower household income, uh, they were less likely to be satisfied. And we also noticed that girls who identified as Asian, Indigenous, or Black were half as likely as girls who identified as white to be very satisfied with their pay. Um, and that's just obviously one aspect. The pay is just one aspect of the summer work. Um, we found that overall experiences of summer work were very positive. So uh, girls were doing things like meeting mentors and making friends um, and gaining skills for future careers. But then another aspect um, that kind of came out of this was instances of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. So we were really able to see such an array 
um, of experiences through this question. So what advice then do you have, um, you know, for those students who are probably right about now getting, you know, getting in gear, getting that resume ready, um, planning for that summer job? What should they know going in? Absolutely. Um, So it's so important to be aware of these differences and acknowledging that they exist. Um, We have a lot of research that points to differences among men and women in terms of inequality, but we're just starting to understand, I think, as well, the differences that exist among youth, too. So in terms of advice, um, I'd really say that we need to continue to advocate for improved work equality rights um, among boys and girls, but also men and women. Um, And, you know, just continuing to recognize and challenge gender stereotypes and being able to advocate for yourself um, and staying true to that. And I think that's a great piece of advice right there. Advocate for yourself. That's so important, uh, no matter what you do or how old you are, right? Of course, yeah. And obviously, trusting God and um, speaking up about anything that you feel uncomfortable um, in the workplace or really just in other instances in your life. Rachel, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region. If this long weekend has you thinking about summer travel plans, Jim Lang with the habits and plans of Canadians. One of the more fascinating articles I've read lately was in McLean's magazine, entitled A Nation of Strangers, penned by editor-in-large Scott Gilmore, about the habits of Canadians traveling not abroad, more so inside Canada. To talk more about it, here is the man to put it all together, Scott Gilmore. Scott, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating information from Stats Canada, and something my wife and I talked about a lot. My, I have family in Nova Scotia, and you know we have two kids, and to fly, four of us to fly to Nova Scotia can get pricey. And we were joking just a few weeks before this article came out that we can get to Florida cheaper than it is to Nova Scotia. And then this happens. It's, it's a fascinating reveal about how hard it is to travel from one province to the other. Yeah, I don't think Canadians appreciate what a bad deal they're getting on, on travel. I'm actually speaking to you right now from northern Manitoba where I'm visiting my family. And to get here from Ottawa, it costs me more than it would cost me to go to literally any other country in the world other than North Korea and Bhutan. <laughs> that's, and that's crazy. You know, I, you know, when you compare it um, just on the, even the normal routes, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, on average, Canadian airfares are 50% more expensive, or sorry, twice as expensive per kilometer as they are in the States and Europe. And so not surprisingly, when you look at Canadian uh, travel patterns, we as a, you know, as a country, we spend about 20 million nights outside of our province, in, in another province every year in terms of uh, work trips and vacation trips. But we spend over 30 million nights overseas. In other words, Canadians are 50% more likely to travel abroad than they are to another Canadian province. And You know, and I get that. When you think about the pricing, I mean, you to see your family in northern Manitoba, me to go to Nova Scotia, I have a sister-in-law in Regina, trying to get to Saskatchewan, trying to get to New Brunswick or places like that in summertime, maybe to do some vacationing, can be financially prohibitive for families in this country. Absolutely. And, and what I was writing about in that column was that the impact of this isn't just on our wallets. It's affecting the, the way we behave as a country. We are far less likely 
to you know know somebody from Nova Scotia is, as we are to know somebody from the United States. We don't travel around the country. We don't study outside of our provinces. Incredibly, only 15% of Canadians live in a province different than the one they were born in. So we are effectively a, a nation of strangers. You know, it's fascinating as well. I have a, a children in high school, and they offer these overseas language packages for different languages, including French, where you go to France. And I would think, wouldn't it be better to go to northern Quebec than it is to France to learn French? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and not just that. I mean, it would be wonderful if our provinces could recognize the value of us being a more close federation. You know, when the, when the premiers get together every once in a while at these first minister meetings, it's basically just a venue for them to fight amongst each other to see who can get the most money out of the federal government. It would be a real breath of fresh air if the premiers got together and said, okay, what can we do together to make this country stronger? And it's a conversation we almost never have. There was another interesting tidbit in the article that really stood out to me because I have a, my oldest daughter is about to go to university. 30% of U.S. students attend out-of-state college. Only 10% of Canadians would leave their home province to go to college or university. Yeah, and again, this seems like it's something that where it would make a lot of sense, it would strengthen us as a country if we could actually encourage out-of-province education. You know, the, the, all of these things lead to a lack of empathy. If somebody from British Columbia has never been to Alberta, never studied in Alberta, doesn't know anybody in Alberta, Cal vacations in California instead of Banff, then, of course, when we have debates about uh, pipelines and about the economy or about climate, the people in British Columbia, they don't, they don't know anybody from Alberta. They have no empathy for Alberta. And so we have these disputes that, frankly, are beginning to tear this country apart. I know that there's issues with air travel, and my family and I, we, we've traveled to Europe a few times, and we'd love the rail travel country to country in Europe. Is there not a way the federal government can improve rail travel, maybe making it more affordable to go to interprovince traveling? You know, there's a way for the federal government to fix all of these things, but we have to keep in mind that the federal government basically just responds to what Canadians want for the most part. And Canadians don't want to pay the money that's required for us to have an effective railway system. They don't want to pay the money that's required for us to have a, an affordable um, uh, airfares. And so, as a result, we end up in the situation we are right now with record high numbers of um, regional alienation. The number of Canadians who believe that uh, their province would be better off on its own is staggering. It's over 50%. Wow. That, that was unheard of when I was growing up in the 80s. I mean, no one ever thought about that. Well, so I grew up in Alberta in the 80s when there was that separatist movement there that everybody often refer, refers back to, as a, and that was a response to, in many ways to Quebec separatism. But according to uh, recent surveys, that sense of Western alienation, that sense that the federal government doesn't do anything for them, that Canada doesn't do anything for them, that they're Albertans first and Canadians second, has never been higher than it is right now. How do we get past the left, the right... Um, I'm better, you're wrong, listen to me, and start trying to unify the country a little bit. I know it sounds a little hokey, but we have seen elements in the past, whether it's through athletics or Terry Fox and other times where we all came together. Could we not use the power and financial might of the government to help us come together a little more? Well, uh, you know, I've done quite a few of these call-in shows over the last week after having written that call-in. It really it struck a chord across the country. And one of the things that I hear again and again is that the only time we seem to ever come together as a country is every four years at the Olympics. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I think it's kind of true. Like, we, we do need to do something that is po possibly, you know, artificial or we, we, we have to create something or construct something because it's not happening naturally. In fact, as I said, it's getting worse. 
And eventually, you know, if these ties that bind us get thinner and thinner, eventually there's going to be some sort of shock, whether it's internal or external, that's going to be the straw that broke the camel's back, and, and the country won't exist anymore. We, we take it for granted, but it requires us to work together as a country, to have some empathy for each other, to recognize that we're greater than the sum of our parts. So perhaps the first step for all of us is just acknowledging that there's a problem, and it's a pretty pretty serious one. Speaking with Scott Gilmore, the editor at Larger McLean's magazine, who put together a fabulous column called A Nation of Strangers. And what, what I appreciate about it, Scott, is you offer solutions. You don't just throw it on the table and say, there it is. And our, our high school-age kids are requ- doing required volunteer hours to graduate. You cannot graduate in high school in Ontario without X amount of volunteer hours. And you talk about the Canadian Service Corps and possibly having the, the youth volunteer at other parts of their own country. Yeah, absolutely. We, 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 Canada's been quite good internationally in terms of sending volunteers overseas for peacekeeping humanitarian missions. It would be wonderful if we were to do something similar at home with the Canada Corps that has the quite explicit intent of tying us together more closely by encouraging out-of-province study, by encouraging uh, students to, to, uh, to study in other provinces, and, and also tackling things like the fact that it's easier for a plumber in Germany to work in France than it is for a plumber in Ontario to work in Quebec. That makes no sense, ever. <laughs> it does. The fact that we can't, it's easier for us to sell beer to the United States than it is to, to carry it across a provincial border, is, it's insane. And it's not just an irritant like the airfares. It's making us weaker as a country, and eventually we're going to be too weak to continue to be a country. I think about, I mean, I, it's as long as I can remember, Scott, there's been issues with our indigenous people and, and the Indian Fairs portfolio in Ottawa. How to fix it? Maybe, just maybe, having some of the youth do volunteer time in these reserves and indigenous people, Inuit people, understand your country more, but helping your own country at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the Canada, Canadians for the most part don't recognize, actually, because as, as a whole, on average, we all do very well in this country. We're, we, we're the top of the charts for all sorts of quality of life and life expectancy and, and what have you. But we, so as a result, we don't recognize how bad things are in some of our more remote communities. And so what you're proposing makes perfect sense. It would, it would you know, kill several birds with one stone. Yeah, it, it, it was an article that really opened my eyes. My wife and I had a long discussion about it, and we, we sort of started breaking the math down, and we were like, we have a, my wife's sister now lives in Florida. Like, it's, it's easier to fly to see her and her kids in Florida than it is to see my family in Nova Scotia. We're like, that's not right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, like I said, I, I actually spent uh, an entire day to verify this. I can fly to every other country in the world except for two for cheaper than it takes me to fly to Flint, Juan, Manitoba. Unbelievable. Scott Gilmore, thank you for a tremendous uh, eye-opening article, and hopefully it creates a discussion for people across Canada to change things. I really appreciate the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. With sunny skies and warmer temperatures on the horizon and with summer just around the corner, a new survey shows that Canadians may not be sun smart enough. To talk about some worrisome trends in a new survey is Dr. Julia Carroll. She's a Toronto-based certified dermatologist and on the board of the Canadian Dermatology Society. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us on the feed. It's my pleasure. Can we begin with some of the findings of this new survey? What can you tell us? 
So there's some things that are really uh, positive from this survey. So when we surveyed Canadians, 77% of them said that sunscreen use was important, and 72% also agreed that wearing sun protective clothing was important, and then 87% of them felt that an SPF factor of 30 or higher was important. But then when we look at what the patients are actually doing, then 23% of them were not, were, sorry, only 23% of them were wearing sunscreen. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. And why do you think there's that gap between knowledge and behavior? I mean, I think that's something we see commonly when we're trying to change people's health behaviors, whether it's wearing a seatbelt, exercising, you know, you know, eating things that are healthy for you. There's what we know we should do and there's what we do. So I think part of it comes from behavior that is ingrained. So one of the important things I always tell my patients who are parents is they really need to model that behavior for their children so the children see it as just something normal and natural that you do, just like putting on a seatbelt when you get into the car. And are melanoma rates on the rise and what exactly is melanoma? So melanoma rates are on the rise. It's an increase of about 2% per year for women and 2.1% per year for men. And what melanoma is, is it's a, a type of skin cancer. It's not the only type, though. There's melanoma skin cancers and non-melanoma skin cancers. But melanoma is the most serious form of skin cancer. And if it's left untreated, it can invade the skin, get further into the bloodstream, and then it can spread to other, other parts of the body and possibly even cause death. How does it present itself? What should we look for? That's a great question. So as dermatologists, we educate our patients to look for the A, B, C, D, E's of melanoma. So A is asymmetry. If you look at a mole and you sort of visually cut it in half and one side looks different than the other, then that can be a concern that that mole needs to be checked. B is the border. So if the border is fuzzy, so if you look at it and you can't see where the mole stops and normal skin begins, then that's a sign that you should see your dermatologist. C is color. So if it's changing or getting darker, D is diameter, so if you use the the top of a pencil eraser as a measure, if it's bigger than that, then it should be checked. And then E is evolution, and this is one I think is just, is a great catch-all because it means if something is changing, whether it's an old mole or a new mole, something's different than it was a year before, six months before, even a month before, then that's something that you should see your doctor or your certified dermatologist to check. Okay, so ABCDE is the acronym to keep in mind when we're looking for that sign or symptom of melanoma. Exactly, and it's such an easy thing to do. You know, in terms of medical tests that are available, it really is just seeing that expert, the certified dermatologist, to take a look at your skin. We use an instrument called a dermatoscope that where we can examine the skin a little bit more magnified and polarized, but really it's just us using our expert eyes to make the initial possible diagnosis. So it's not something people should be scared about or concerned about. It's quite easy. And Dr. Carroll, how do we minimize the risk for melanoma? Well, the big thing that we know that causes melanoma, the thing that we can change and control is sun exposure. So some of the things you want to do are seeking shade between the hours of 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., wearing protective clothing, and that would also include a wide-brimmed hat and UV protective sunglasses, and then wearing sunscreen with the minimum sun protection factor or SPF of 30. And the other thing is early detection. So we know that if we catch a melanoma early, 
that we can treat it, and many people will go on to live full lives after having been diagnosed with a melanoma. So it's important to be checking your skin and looking out for those ABCDEs. Dr. Carroll, if we can just circle back to the survey, can you share with us some of the positive findings of the survey and perhaps some areas of concern as well? Sure. Uh, so we found that 58% of people were conducting self-examinations of their skin and 34% were asking their doctor or their dermatologist to conduct skin examinations. And that's important because we know that a lot of skin cancers are found by the patients or by their family members. So it's a good idea to know your moles uh, very well. And um, there was a few concerns, though. So some of the people, so like 23% thought that getting a sunburn was the first step to getting a tan. And then there was also a lot of people that believed that a base tan uh, was something that would protect you from the sun, and we know that that's not true. And then 52% of people said that a tan gave a good impression, like I think the impression of good health. Um, the interesting thing about that is that comes from years ago. Coco Chanel came back from the beach in the Riviera with a tan, and before that, tans weren't very popular, um, and then she made the tan popular. So we have Coco Chanel to thank for that and lovely handbags. <laughs> yes, and that, you know, that sentiment has certainly been around a long time. Yeah, but I think it is changing because, you, you know, maybe not the, the average tan, but when you see people who are really, really tanned, you know, it's mocked in Hollywood and movies and, um, you know, there was a, I think there was a, a woman that was a, the tanning bed mom. Mm-hmm. And so it is shifting, but as dermatologists, not shifting quite as rapidly as we would like it to. Where can our listeners get more information? So an excellent source of information is dermatology.ca, and that's the website uh, that represents the Board Certified Dermatologists of Canada. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us on the feed and for all the great information and advice as well. That's great. Have a great day. Wear your sunscreen. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or community event, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.